Today on Watching Your Wealth, estate planning tips for families with stepchildren. This is Watching Your Wealth from the Wall Street Journal. Now, from our studios in New York, here's Veronica Dagger. This is Veronica Dagger, and you're listening to Watching Your Wealth, while you learn all you need to know about building your wealth and protecting your money. You McGill is Executive Vice President at Northern Trust. Welcome you. Thank you, Veronica. You. So we're seeing more second marriages in America, and that often means more stepchildren, right? It does. It does indeed. And so tell us about what that implication, what the implications are for wealthy families. I think one of the trends that's important to note in this uh, in rise of stepchildren, the Pew Research indicates that there are about 40% of American families that have some step relative. It may be a step parent, it may be a step sibling, a step child. And one of the trends that really is generational that affects this is the fact that if we look back at the World War II generation, there were step families then, of course, but marriages then tended to last longer before divorce intervened, and a second marriage might have introduced stepchildren, sometimes actual half-siblings, but more often stepchildren, leading to something that I call coexistent families, Mm -hmm. where there was a second marriage, but there was a family on each side that coexisted. Today, uh, in the boomer generation in particular, and even younger generations, marriages are ending earlier and then leading to blended families where you have his children, her children, and their children. So you see, in a sense, changes in family composition that are in part generational. But of course, in all cases, they do affect the planning process because you have more than a nuclear family, which is, in a sense, at the table in the planning process. Indeed. I would think it would make estate planning a lot more difficult. I think it does, in part because of the way that wealth informs lifestyle. When you have a blended family, for example, um, where there are his, hers, and theirs, and there's wealth at the table, it's going to affect all the lives at the table, all the lives in the family, irrespective of the blood relationship. So it's going to affect lifestyle and vacation habits and the kind of home in which they live. And then coming right along with that are expectations about that wealth Mm. and the way it's going to inform everyone's life. Indeed, that's a good point about expectations. I would think very often it seems like there's a tendency to keep the majority of the assets, the money, within the bloodline. Is that still the case or is that less so given all the blended families these days? It has been the case, Veronica, historically that wealth, financial wealth, tends to flow with bloodlines. And I think that is in part cultural. Um, It is also reinforced by estate planning practices, and in some cases, in most cases, it's reinforced by the law. Mm -hmm. If a person dies without a will in the United States, that's what we lawyers call dying intestate, Mm -hmm. um, the wealth never flows to stepchildren. It's going to flow to a spouse. It's going to flow to blood descendants or other descendants or ancestral descendants. There's a very strong preference for the bloodline. There's an interesting study that was done by a couple of academicians that are looking at these changes in the structure of families and, and making the inference that um, there, there are more, there's more inequality mm. in distributions in the states. But I think one of the things that if you read the study, they, they treated stepchildren um, in the same way that children would be treated statistically. 
And so you have far more families with stepchildren. And what you're, I think what we continue to see is that there's a strong preference for the bloodline when it comes to gifting and inheritance. I see, which may not always seem fair to the people who aren't that direct bloodline. Uh, tell us, give us some advice in terms of estate planning tips for these families who are blended, who may have ch- uh, stepchildren. You know, one of the things you had mentioned to me earlier was, you know, you want to review all the documents that may address legal obligations relating to support and inheritance. Tell us about that and how that can help. I think it's it's very important, and indeed this is a good step in, for anyone who's undertaking estate planning, is to look at any agreements, court orders, documents that can influence the way in which wealth is going to pass or the kinds of obligations that one may have. Uh, to fulfill in the planning process. And included in that would be things like divorce decrees or property settlements that arise out of a divorce, premarital agreements, postnuptial agreements, etc. And what you're looking for there is to understand, first of all, who has responsibility mm-hmm. to do what? Who has responsibility to provide support? Who has responsibility to pay for college education or weddings, that kind of thing? Mm-hmm. Um, and and you you need to know that to make sure that the the resources are following the obligation. You also want to know as well as to whether or not in those agreements someone undertook a responsibility, for example, to establish a trust Mm. in the event of a premature death. Mm -hmm. And what would the terms of that trust be? Um, So those are are very important agreements to understand as a baseline for the estate planning process. Indeed. What about with the blended families? Should you defer an inheritance of blood descendants until the death of that second spouse? Um, Or should you do it sooner? I feel like there's a little bit mixed uh, thinking on this. You know, it's a it's a very interesting question, and it and it gets again at generational differences. If we look back in history, and, and let's use World War II generation as the most recent example, estate planning was always practiced with the notion that one spouse would precede the other in death, typically mm-hmm. the male, because of shorter life expectancy, and that because of the way our tax laws work, the inheritance would pass to the surviving spouse in some form of qualified marital trust. And the children's inheritances will be deferred until the death of that spouse. And that's a fine construct for a nuclear family right. with biological or adopted children. But when you blend families, and for example, if a spouse happens to be quite a bit younger, a surviving spouse is quite a bit younger. Like the same age as the kids. Of, <laughs> okay. Yeah, the planning construct starts to, it, it starts to show its yeah. weakness. And the weakness is that that surviving spouse, in a sense, stands between the grantor mm-hmm. and the objects of affection, the children. And, and, and that can really complicate family relations. Okay. And so we, when we are working with counsel with blended families, we try to find ways to accelerate inheritances for at least older children or the children of the first to die mm-hmm. so that, in a sense, they're not trying to look through a step-parent to the inheritance. Yeah. And, I, and I think that can help, in a sense, um, sort of calm the waters, if you will, Absolutely. with respect to inheritance expectations. Maybe cut off some agreements before they happen. What about if there's shared assets like, you know, the family foundation or the vacation property in Maine? Or, you know, how do you handle that if you have a blended family and when you're thinking about planning? What's so interesting with those kinds of assets, Veronica, is that they present challenges to what I'll call average nuclear biological families. 
in thinking about um, how will a family work together, collaborate together, make decisions about, for example, just a vacation home? Um, or who is it who gets to participate in making decisions for a family foundation? Or um, I think one of the most important areas in the United States is, is family businesses. Who has a right to work at the company? Mm-hmm. And after fulfilling what kinds of expectations with respect to prior work and education, et cetera. So these shared assets are ones in a sense that, that require, in some cases, force decision-making and collaboration among family members. I think the most important thing is to, is to step back and say, number one, how will those assets be shared among full-blood, half-blood stepchildren? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and those are hard conversations. They're, they're critical conversations, but they need to precede the planning for how those assets will be disposed of. And it's really a question that I put under a sort of broad theme of who's at the table. Right. Um, and I think that's one of the most important issues for families today, whether we're talking about estate planning or gifting or use of shared assets, who's at the table? The, you know, the dining room table is not the Norman Rockwell dining room table. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is for some families today, but increasingly it is a different portrait of the American family. Indeed. And I think communication in all of this, it seems like that's a, a really important part of any of these conversations. Having the conversations and keeping the conversations going, these aren't just one-time conversations. These are perhaps over a lifetime you need to keep talking about this with your family, these issues. It's so important. Uh, communication is critical. It reminds me of an interesting conversation I had a long time ago. One of the first blended families that I'd worked with, it was a prospective client um, who had married for the second time. So he had children from a first spouse um, and then two, two children, two children from a second spouse. And I, he'd asked me to review his estate plan, which I did. And he left one I think it was one quarter of his estate to the first set of children and three quarters of the estate to the second set of children. Mm. And there was no explanation for it. There was just this set gets 25%, this set Mm -hmm. gets 75%. And when I asked him about that, he said, well, the first ones are going to inherit from their mother's side of the family. Mm. And speaking of documentation, I said, do you know how much and do you know under what estate plan? And he was, he'd surmised this Mm. based upon old information from the former spouse. And then I said, just to get to the topic of communication, I said, have you ever discussed this with those children? Mm -hmm. No. And I said, this is really important. They need to know why they're only getting, first of all, you need to figure out it's a quarter right. Are they going to inherit? And second, you need to discuss the why, because if they, if they don't hear they're going to say, well, did dad love us less? Right, yeah. Did he love the second set of children? Nice. So one of my, one of my uh, the things that I counsel families is that there are no two-way conversations in a cemetery. Indeed. Your estate plan is the last communication to a family. Mm-hmm. And if there are unique provisions in that plan, if you're doing something, for example, for stepchildren, that might frustrate expectations of blood children, these things have to be communicated about before that document becomes irrevocable. Indeed, that's right. Minimize the hurt feelings and also the potential wars that could go on after you die. Thank you so much. This has been a lot of helpful and enlightening info. Yeah, you're welcome. It's great to talk about it. Thank you. This has been Watching Your Wealth, a production of the Wall Street Journal. I'm Veronica Dagger. For more information, check us out at wsj.com slash podcasts. Thanks for listening. WSJ Podcasts, now available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and the Google Play Music app.